Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. And now, on to my interview with Scott Gerard. Definitely, if it's playing the blues. I mean, the blues is home for me. You know, if you get me on stage to play a blues, it's, 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 like, it's like putting on a bathrobe and slippers for me. It's the best feeling in the world when that music starts playing. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they move, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. Welcome to the Silent Giants Podcast, a podcast highlighting the superstars behind your favorite superstars in creative industries. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. This week's Silent Giant is Grammy nominated singer, songwriter, and guitarist Scott Sherard, the silent giant behind Greg Almond and the Almond Brothers. Scott was Greg's longtime writing partner, musical director, and lead guitarist, and has been named by Billboard magazine as one of the best blues and R&B guitarists in the country. He stopped by the show to talk about his upbringing in Michigan, how he got into music, moving to NYC, working with Greg Allman, being nominated for a Grammy, co-writing Greg's final recorded song before he passed away, and shares his knowledge of the music industry. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter, guitarist, Musical director, my friend, the silent giant, Scott Sherrard. What's up, Scott? <laughs> How's it going, man? Pleasure to meet you. Oh, pleasure meeting you too, man. How's everything going? Uh, it's been really busy. I just got back from a, a tour through the American South with my band. Okay. In our new tour van. Uh-oh. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about it. It was fun, man. I mean, the South is home away from home, you know, I've been... Going down there regularly since I was a teenager, you know, I had some friends who went to uh, who went to Tulane in New Orleans. Yeah, when yeah, I was yeah. About sixteen, that was my probably my first time down there. And then uh, when I was eighteen, I went and played there a couple times with uh, this great blues band, Willie Higgins and the Mob, in uh, Memphis. We played Memphis, and uh, you know, I, I just fell in love with that region. And then, of course, I've spent the last you know the last ten years, I guess, of Greg Allman's life, you know. Uh, working with him down there and of course he lived in savannah georgia it was from daytona beach and macon georgia so uh are you from are you from the south no i'm from michigan i was okay. born in uh, ann arbor and i was raised in like dearborn detroit area and then kind of moved all over and then i ended up going to high school in milwaukee i'm kind of a kind of a kid of the rust belt yeah you like you're just the the midwest hustler yeah <laughs> it's the it's a rust belt child wait so what was it like growing up in michigan well i was there until i was about probably about eight years old, but I am a true Michigander. I mean, both sides are back a couple generations in Michigan. Okay. So, um, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, I didn't get exposed to very much, uh, at that early age, uh, directly, but definitely through my parents and my dad's a singer, songwriter, guitar player too. Um, and he was, you know, heavily influenced by his time in Ann Arbor and Detroit, you know, by everything from, Motown to the early garage rock to the coffee house circuit. Um, it was a sixties and Michigan was amazing. Yeah, t- tell me about your parents. So you said your dad was a, a singer songwriter. Yeah. He still plays actually. Um, he was a professional, uh, 
on and off up until about they had me, and then they kind of realized that they weren't, my parents weren't really down for the the full-time musician struggle. Um, no one's down for the struggle. The word struggle, no one's down for. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> fair. I mean, I suppose it's a matter of, uh, it's a matter of uh, your tolerance, right? It's like, uh, it's your tolerance, but it's also your obsession, right? It's, mm. it's a very interesting thing. I mean, my wife and I have been together it's an unprecedented relationship in the music business. We've been together about 16 or 17 years oh in total. God. We've been married for 10. Wow. And uh, my parents were high school sweethearts, and they're still together. Um, and maybe that's because they got out of it. But for my wife and I, it's kind of like, like a ride or die for life thing, just being a musician. I'm yeah. super, super lucky for that, man. I, I count my blessings every day for having her. Oh, man. Well, you know, I always say that um, one of my favorite questions to ask on the podcast uh, when I interview folks is, what do your parents do? Yeah. It's because I'm a firm believer that uh, no one's here by accident. Uh, no one's life is, you know, no, Jay-Z just, just didn't become Jay-Z. You know, there were life things, a grooming process that kind of led him that way. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm here by design, essentially, yeah. because my, you know... My parents were always obsessed with with art, whether it be going to you know live music or plays, and I mean, uh, and, and literature and movies and stuff. I mean, we were uh, an aggressively creative household. Um, you know, my mom was a painter in high school, and then she used, she used to cut hair to make money. Um, yeah, my mom was a hairstylist too. Oh yeah, yeah. So we had her. She was cutting hair in the basement when I was a little kid. Okay, um, but uh, you know, so we had like this. This kind of it was kind of like a salon. I mean, by the time I was a, I always had musicians around growing up. But by the time I was a teenager in Milwaukee, we had like uh, all the local musicians were coming over to our house to eat and jam because we had like a little jam set up in our basement with a little rickety recording studio. You know, nothing fancy, but could kind of get the job done for demoing and stuff. And we had all the local dudes, especially from the blues. Uh, you know, R&B and jazz scene, the older cats like Mel Ryan and Buddy Miles uh, coming over to hang out and then uh, hanging out in the clubs with Hubert Sumlin and Pine Top Perkins. I mean, those were they, those were our local musicians and they were the guys who played on the Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters records. Wow. So they'd be at the jam sessions and they, you know, there was this whole kind of scene built around those guys um, that I was kind of, you know, schooled by and... Uh, my parents were kind of participating in a social level as well. So it was kind of like growing up in a in a salon of musicians. So, yeah, I was definitely, it was preordained. I mean, I started playing guitar when I was 10, and the first thing my dad showed me was the, the Jimmy Reed shuffle. And, and Jimmy Reed is like, you know, really uh, one of the top five greatest rock and roll songwriters. I mean, he's the original. Him and Chuck Berry are the original rock and roll uh, Beethovens. They're, they're the, they're the, if you don't have those two, you don't have any Rolling Stones or Beatles or you know, any of the British stuff, any of the American stuff, like the Allman Brothers or any of those bands. They, and, and, and those guys would be the first to admit that. Did you know when you were 10 years old that you wanted to, you know, be a musician? I mean, I had, you know, when I was 10, I was, I mean, I was 10, but I was already, you know, from a very early age, I was uh, into creative writing. Okay. You know, I was always into, uh, you know, I guess it could be, you know, you can't call it literature at that age. But I was into like, I remember being into Greek myths at an unusually early age. And then I was, by the time I was 13, I was like heavily into Shakespeare. Like I was an AP English kid. And then eventually that, you know, that's always been a side passion of mine. But that goes really well with being a lyricist and a songwriter. Exactly. So it kind of goes hand in hand. And of course, I found out that you know, all my favorite songwriters have somewhat of a, uh, whether it be, you know, uh, sort of literary wisdom or actually literary, actual literary study, uh, you know, having a way with words is, is helpful if you're going to, if you're going to write, um, you know, Greg Allman used to say to me, um, and he's of course always one of my favorite songwriters, obviously, even when I was a kid, um, he's one of my biggest inspirations. And he used to say, uh, there's only uh, one thing more powerful that man has made uh, than the nuclear bomb. And he said that was words. <laughs> that's true. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's absolutely beautiful. And that's, that makes a lot of sense. So 
I was kind of obsessed with that from the beginning. And I think maybe somewhere in my tiny head, I thought maybe I wanted to be a writer or an illustrator. I was into comic books. But uh, after about a year of banging away on that guitar, once I could hold the Jimmy Reed and the Chuck Berry rhythm down and play a couple Bob Dylan and Otis Redding songs, this is, this is stuff my dad used to play and sing. So yeah. I was learning how to back him up. Once I could actually back him up, that was pretty much it. I, I, I There was no turning back at that point. So so after a year uh, of learning how to play, you're, you're playing with your dad. What was the next step for you as an individual? Did you like start a band? Pretty much right away, yeah. Well, you know, we were, we were living in like uh, townhouses and cul-de-sacs and stuff. I think I had a couple lost years. There was uh, this lost couple of years where we were in Pennsylvania, a town called Newtown. It's about 45 minutes outside of Philly. My dad was working in Philly. And we were living in, you know, kind of that, that kind of like rural suburban hell where it's like you're not in the country and you're in like this, you know, you're riding your bike around. And, you know, it's probably when I was about 11, 12, when I was really starting to get my fingers on the guitar, like when I was playing until my fingers were bleeding. And, you know, I'd go out and ride on my bike and, you know, we go, you know, you had nothing to do, you know. You think about, you know, you, you know, you don't have much parenting, so you're out there on your bike all night. We, we, we would, like, uh, trash these construction projects and do graffiti and all this crap. And these these bad kids I was rolling with, I finally started teaching them how to play instruments. And uh, my dad had a bass and a drum set in in our basement, unfinished basement, that were, that were ratty. But I started teaching, you know, my running partners how to play instruments. And it didn't take long before we stopped trashing properties and started practicing all day yeah you know that's a really important lesson too i mean i have a lot of friends who went through that as well you know when i went to a high school of the arts in milwaukee and by the time i got there i was 15 16 and a lot of my friends you know if it wasn't for you know either church or the high school of the arts they would have been out you know getting in a lot of trouble music saves a lot of lives it does so it definitely was not you know life-saving for me it's like petty, you know, save me from a life of petty crime. <laughs> but the point, the reason I tell the story is because those kids I was hanging with, they also like were into music, but they didn't know how to play an instrument. So I had taught myself to play bass and drums as well while I was learning guitar. So I started teaching them how to play those instruments. And we would sit with these records, you know, and I'm, I mean, like one kid would be into like, you know, this is the 80s. So one kid would be into like in excess, right? So we'd learn a couple of those. And then I'd be throwing like these Chuck Berry songs at them and like, uh, you know, Almond Brothers yeah. already, you know, and uh, and Led Zeppelin was another big sort of, they were like these gateway drag bands to, to the blues and jazz records that my parents were listening to and rhythm and blues. I mean, probably, you know, besides the, the, the heavy blues and folk and early rock and roll, I mean, soul music was huge in my house because my, my parents, you know, the Temptations played their uh, played their high school prom. What? Yeah, it was like when they first had first come out. They were doing one of those tours where they would go like do to the, all high the high school dances. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Like they would. They, they would usually. I don't know. I don't know if they lip synced for them or not. But usually, like the like the Parliaments used to do that. George Clinton's early band. They went, Don yeah. was. I was working with a year or two ago on Greg's record. He's from Detroit, and he was telling the same story about uh, how the Parliaments you know, came to his school and lip synced, you know, and my parents, it was the temptations, but they used to go to, you know, clubs and see all these great uh, bands and, you know, that early wave of rock bands from Detroit, there's bands like Mitch Ryder and the Detroit wheels. Yeah. Yeah. Those bands were like, they would buy uh they all, they also had the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. So they bought like the Beatles instruments and outfits, but they only played like Motown tunes. <laughs> <laughs> conflicted that's like early garage rock you know that's kind of that's kind of the hallmark of it yeah you know i interviewed a, a guy named liberty devito oh yeah he's a legendary rock drummer man yeah, that he, guy's played on a lot of hit songs he is the man billy joel yeah, yeah. Uh, he's on all the billy joel stuff and he mentioned um the detroit riders and his interview yeah. like one of his big, big inspirations growing up as a kid mitch Ryder is still around mitch Ryder's. i'm sorry mitch Ryder. yeah I was just uh, I was just doing this gig in Chattanooga, and I ran into a guy who was working down there, and he told me uh, Mitch Ryder had just been through. I guess Mitch Ryder lives in Nashville now, but I guess he's still huge in Europe, and he tours over there all the time. Wow. I, I was surprised he was even alive. I hadn't heard his name in 
since I was a kid. Yeah, know? I'd never heard of him until Liberty brought him up, and I was like, oh wow, he's a bad cat. Uh, obviously, obviously, that was a cool. That was a cool little scene that was going on around there. But that that all kind of informed what we were learning. Um, you know, in that whatever, it wasn't really a band that I put together, but in that sort of group of kids, we were, you know, messing around down in the basement. And then we ended up, you know, at 12, 13, I was writing songs and one of the kids ended up becoming like the singer. And, um, you know, we got a four track cassette recorder and started, you know, like making our own music. When, when was your first show? Well, I'm told it was, I saw Dion Warwick when I was six years old in a park. I think that was my first actual concert. And what was the first show you played in? That I can in? actually kind of remember. What was the first show you played in? It had to be, uh, had to be a dance. Probably around when I was junior high school. Um, you know, probably in the seventh grade, I think I can remember. But even in the, in the fourth grade or fifth grade, I also remember, I think that was the first time I ever performed for anyone, actually. I had just been playing for a year or something or a year or two and uh, backed up a couple kids on a U2 song. And then I did a, uh, right after that, my my second public performance of my life was, uh, was a, a distinct uh, humiliation. Uh, there was a, a big uh, assembly. I was going to a school at the time where it was like K through 12 was all like thousands of kids were in this auditorium and uh there was a like a choir singing the lion sleeps tonight and i had my my dad's electric guitar on the side of the stage and i had it all tuned up with my tuner and i was ready to go and i was young i'd only been playing the guitar about a year at this point i think a year or two and uh the music teacher insisted she said oh you don't have it in tune and she was definitely definitely wrong um and she tuned it to a piano that was down in the pit well when it came time to perform i went on stage with the guitar and I was playing with a grand piano on the stage. And the piano down in the pit was probably about a quarter tone off. So we, we kicked off that song with the 20 kids in the choir and 1,000 kids started to play. And that guitar was so out of tune, man. <laughs> it was insane. And I remember the whole place just laughing. And then the teacher came over and took it out of my hands in front of everybody laughing and no. tuned it. And tuned it one note at a time to the grand piano on the stage while I sat in the chair and waited. Wow. It's kind of a miracle did, did, did I stuck with bad? it after that. Oh, did, my God. I was humiliated. <laughs> Didn't help that there, I was also a fat kid at that time, too. So it made it, made it real easy to mess with me. There you know? is nothing worse than being humiliated on stage, especially during your early performances. Well, I mean, that was probably the second time I ever played for anyone. Oh, that sucks. But you know what's weird is I, I, never, have, uh, I never have stage fright, ever. I never get nervous. You know, I figure it can't get any worse than that. That's true. Maybe, maybe it's a blessing. You know, I think maybe it was for me. Yeah, my second show was very, very painful as well. My first one was was pretty good. Yeah. I was like, oh, I could do this. And yeah. then the second one was a total stinker. Comedians say that too. They say it's it's better to have. A, they say it's better to have. A, well, I've heard it both ways, but there's, you know, there's there's something similar about. I mean, any kind of performing artist on stage. I mean. You're expecting a reaction, right? Right. But but the thing is, is that it's not. It's ultimately for something like music. It's not always good if the reaction is positive. I mean, look at when Bob Dylan had all the folk people throwing objects at him and screaming at him. Oh, when, when he showed up with electric, electric? Right. Yeah. right, right, right. You know, ultimately that was great for the music. Um, you know, it's not. I guess that's an exception to the rule, but you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I prefer not <laughs> that yeah. kind of. <laughs> I mean, that's that kind a of pretty, reaction. But you know that's a that's a hell of a that's a hell of a sea change he enacted. I mean that's pretty that's pretty ballsy. Um, I kind of admire that. I mean Miles was known for the same thing. You know, playing with his back to the audience, he got booed for that sometimes. He get booed for showing up, you know, three hours late for a concert. Well, also they have they have a little more clout too at this time in their career. Well, yeah, I suppose that's true. <laughs> There's nothing to lose at that point. Exactly. Like, you know, I'm already kind of a legend. Yeah, I'll show up with a lecture. I'm definitely still trying to please everybody. Trust me. <laughs> And, and so uh, how did you turn into a professional musician? Like, What was the first step for you and how that happened in your life? I think it's, I think it's immediate. I mean, once you, there's some place you cross as a human being. And for most, for most people, it's, it's in the teenage years or it can be before. And it's been this way with musicians since 
the dawn of time. Uh, it just owns you. There's no, you know, you don't choose it. It chooses you. So the concept of a professional, um, it seemed absurd to me. It was like, this is the only thing I'm going to do. There's no, there's no question. And of course, you know, I was laughed at and I had school counselors telling me I was crazy and I had, you know, but you know, my parents were essentially, uh, you know, in a, I guess in a way, I mean, they were kind of stage parents, you know, they, they saw the talent and they decided that they were going to put all their energy into their son being a success. And maybe that had something to do with, you know, my dad's experience in the business being negative. Um, I'm sure it had somewhat to do with that. I'm not going to say that's the only reason. But even though his experience was negative, he still encouraged you? I think he saw that I wasn't going to stop. And I think when he saw that, I think he had recognized that and enough other musicians, that was not, that was not something he had in his DNA, right? Because see, my dad had the talent, but he didn't have the obsession. And I'm going to tell you something, man, the obsession and the discipline is way more important than the talent. Mm. Now there are some people who just have it naturally and stumble into things, you know, and you know, the musician I the, the legendary musician that I know best is Greg Allman. And, you know, I think that without his brother, we may never have heard his music because he was just born with that voice and that talent. But he didn't have any of the other uh, aspects of, you know, being driven together in right. terms of a career. That was his brother. Okay. And I think there's that kind of scale with talent, you know. I feel like with me, I got, you know... I'm I'm a real kind of I'm a kind of a fair weather friend with music in terms of all the different hats you have to wear. You know, I have some days where I'm really strong at being creative and I have others where I'm good at hustling, but I I, I think it's really hard to balance both. And I think that the hallmark of most successful musicians in our day and age now is that, you know, their hustle is just you know, inconceivably great. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the music is just completely uh the quality of music is diminished. It does not matter. Right. The, the quality you know? <laughs> of music has diminished, <laughs> yeah. but the hustle yeah. is incredible. And the hustle is is across the board, too. It's part of the production. You know, you can be very, your level of calculation can be very, um, can be very extensive, you know, in terms of being a professional musician to succeed. Um I'm trying to strike a balance, and I always have, and maybe that's why I'm such a kind of late bloomer on the career side, is I'm trying to strike a balance between being engaged with fans, you know, and that, of course, the most important part of that is, besides the live shows, is the social media, trying to balance that relationship in a healthy way with being uh, someone who's, you know, a traditional sort of singer, songwriter, performer right. that puts a lot of care and attention into the art. You know, and I, I try that. I try to keep the balance on that side of things. Because, you know, what's I was telling my, my boy the other day, we were, we're vibing out about music. And I said, uh, uh, he he's kind of struggles with the same thing with kind of being an artist, being a singer, songwriter, but also um, kind of building that social media presence. And I told him, I was like, you know, what, man, think about it this way. If it doesn't happen on social, it doesn't happen. Like if you're if you're writing a song, just turn that camera on and write the song. Like, people just want to see this a little bit in your life. But like that's kind of what it's become with technology these days. Like, if it doesn't happen on Instagram, if, if it's my birthday and I don't put it on Instagram, no one knows. I mean, you know, for better or for worse, and God knows we might be living in a Twilight Zone episode, but our, our politics is being run on Twitter at this point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Isn't that scary? I mean, you don't have any more evidence of how important social media is than the fact that, you know... Um, you know, the most important news stories to perhaps our survival are actually existing on a, a social media platform. Yeah, like 135 characters. That's it. It's like, you know, Greg said, you know, words, you know, they're more important. They're more powerful than the nuclear bomb, you know. Totally. <laughs> and so how did you, uh, I want to get into, uh, what was your first big break professionally? Like when, what was a breakthrough moment where you were like, damn, you know, man, like I'm doing this. I mean, I... I've had a lot of uh had a lot of misses. Um I spent probably probably when I got the gig with Greg 
when I was uh, 2008. I think I was about 30 then. That's when I was like, oh, okay, now this is really taken off. And before that, it had been uh, an inconceivable array of false starts, you know, involving record labels and producers and development deals and bands. And it's t- tell me some of those false starts. Well, um, you know, in Milwaukee, when I was a teenager, I was doing really well. I was um, making a good living. I had my own apartment and car when I was 18. <laughs> and I decided to leave that all behind and move to New York because why does everybody ultimately give up and move to New York? Because my friend and I had found a rent-controlled apartment in East Village. Everything in New York is about real estate. All, all life here uh, revolves around real estate. <laughs> so at 19, I moved into this apartment and uh, 13th and 1st Avenue, okay. rent-controlled, three-bedroom, okay. which, of course, is inconceivable now. There's probably uh, probably the head of uh, Bear Stearns lives in this apartment now. <laughs> um, but it was still a really funky area. I mean, there was a... Uh, Allen Ginsberg lived across the street from me. He actually died the year I moved in, which oh, was wow. always one of my favorite uh, poet writers. It was kind of a weird coincidence. Um, we had a uh, methadone clinic on the block, there were a lot of junkies shooting up in front of our building. I mean, it's kind of like the old East Village, but it didn't take long. Within a couple of years, uh, Giuliani had uh, sent the SWAT teams through and cleared out all the tenements, eventually us too. <laughs> um, you know how that whole situation goes. Um, but in the midst of that, I was here with my buddy, Sean Dixon. We had a band called the Chesterfields in Milwaukee, and we were the only two band members who made it out here. And we started a new band here with some musicians from here. And we, um, you know, very early on, we were playing at a club called Terra Blues. We had a bunch of gigs. We were real lucky. We were at these clubs that have all closed. uh, Chicago Blues, uh, Manny's Car Wash, Finally Fred's. Uh, There was a place called the Evelyn Lounge. We had residencies at all of them. We were actually doing pretty well within a year or two. But one of those clubs we used to play all the time was called Terra Blues, and there were a couple artists. One is uh, Bill Sims, who became a huge influence on me. And actually, you know, I'm working with Bill right now on a bunch of different projects. Um, He's been around for a long time. I want to say Bill might be approaching 70, and uh, he's definitely the best blues musician from the New York scene in the last, you know, 40 years. You know, he's an incredible singer-guitar player. But there was a legendary A&R guy named Ahmed Erdogan who started Atlantic Records, and he used to come down to this club, and he used to love to go watch Bill. And one night I opened for Bill. I think it was Bill or Michael Powers. I can't remember now. And, uh, you know, Ahmed liked what he heard, and I ended up um, getting invited to his office through a confluence of events. And, uh, you know, Ahmed was the guy who signed Ray Charles and Ornette Coleman Rolling Stones, Cream. He has an eye for talent. Yeah. <laughs> he acquired Stax Records back in the day and kind of made that label what it was. He was partnered with Jerry Wexler and um, the legendary producer, uh, and they made all those records on Atlantic, all those incredible soul and rock and roll and jazz records. He's just the best. He's the best record man in the history of the music business. And... He sat me down at the age of 21, I guess I was. And he basically just, you know, gave me the most important advice in my life. I mean, he, this would have been about 99 or 2000. And he kind of uh, dissected the entire problem with the music business uh, or diagnosed, I should say, the disease, you know, Mm. right in front of me. You know, he saw the whole problem with the short-sightedness of, the A&R people, um, you know, the concept of fighting technology instead of embracing it. Um, And he basically told me, like, the music business right now is going to kill itself, and I don't know how long that cycle is going to take. And at the end of it, you'll have something new. And he's like, if you want to stick it out, you better get good at everything. And he had a demo. He had my demo at that time, which coincidentally had a cover of Ray Charles's Fool for You on it, which was a, a record he produced. Oh, crazy. So I was, you know, mortified about that. But luckily, he actually mentioned, he's like, I liked your take on it. I felt very lucky for that. Told me to stay in touch with him after that long first meeting in his office. 
and uh, he tried. He sent my my demo around. You know, we were talking to this producer Tommy Lapuma at one point, and um, we just couldn't get anybody to. You know, everybody at Atlantic rejected it, and he kept telling me, you know, this this is just what you're going to deal with. You know, if this was the '60s or '70s, I'd have signed you to a five album deal, and we would have figured you out. But nobody does that anymore. And yeah, it's just going to get worse and worse. So then that kind of started my journey, and I met a lawyer named Peter Thal, um, who I'm still with. Who is uh, I, I might I might venture to say he's a somewhat legendary music attorney, especially on the publishing of side of music and he's been an unbelievable ally i mean if there's any advice i could give to anyone who wants to get into music and be serious about it the first thing you have to find is a good lawyer and that's the person you're going to need at every turn that your career takes that's significant because in the success that i've had particularly in the last decade um every advance I've made, I've needed him for some different reason, whether it was to negotiate a deal um, with, you know, a publisher or another lawyer or another artist or to, you know, make people who, who, uh, who have ulterior motives go away. <laughs> yeah. Know, a lawyer is like the only way you're going to get paid in the music business. Cause like, how did you, how did you get a lawyer? How'd you find him? I found him through, there were some friends of ours from Milwaukee who had started this, uh, the friends of my family, essentially, who'd started this uh, random uh, website. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it right now. Music Notes, was it called? I think it might have been called Music Notes. I'd have to look it up. I'm not sure if it's still going, but they were trying to, this was, again, this was like 2000. So they were trying to get it on the ground floor with uh, with this company with, online sheet music publishing mm -hmm. and they just randomly took a stab and said who's the best music publishing lawyer and they found him in new york and he got excited about the project and these people and i'm sorry i can't remember their names it's, I, I didn't really know them very well they were friends of my family they hit up my family and were like you know scott should meet with this guy. We just met him. He's going to do our legal work for this music notes thing. Then of course I met with, with Peter Thaw and I found out that he was, you know, he had worked with Ahmed Erdogan over the years and some other people that I already met with, <laughs> you know, he's worked with a lot of established people in the business. Um, so we just hit it off and he, you know, we'd recorded our second Chesterfields album at the point that I met Peter. This might've been 2001 uh, Henry Street Soul, and we gave him an early copy of it, and he loved the record. He was crazy about the record, and uh, he shopped it around for us. You know, we had everybody looking at us. Blue Note at the time was real hot. They just had Nora Jones had just come out. Bruce Lundball was was interested in the band, and there were a variety of labels that were interested in the band. But um, music was capsizing at the time. Um, with the Chesterfields, we were really interesting band we were you know a seven to ten piece band we were as much as 12 pieces on the record Whew. we were young man y'all you know? were y'all were a family yeah and it was it was a really was basically sean dixon and i wrote all the songs and arranged all the music okay um you know from i met him at high school of the arts in milwaukee and we'd moved head over to hulu this march where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here together in that apartment in East Village. And... um 
the band was, you know, back then, you know, it was a lot closer. I guess the end result, the sound, the end result of the sound is we were going for like this kind of larger band sound, kind of like Sly and the Family Stone or, uh, you know, uh, like Earth, Wind and Fire or Tower of Power. That's kind of what the band sounded like. Okay. Um, you know, and at that time, 2001, 03, you know, the... Uh, God, I hate this term, but there was, the, you know, the, all the marketing people were calling it neo soul. I mean, I just, I just, you know, really liked some of the music that was coming out. And there was a scene at SOBs that we kind of participated in, you know, where you had all those bands. Um, this was the, the early days of Jill Scott when she would play there and there'd be 20 people there. Yeah. You know? Oh, wow. And our band would be on the bill, you know, or, um, there were a couple other bands. Um, you know, there was the hip-hop thing also that was going on at, at SOBs that was bleeding into that. We had a lot of friends who were, you know, everybody was using bands. Like Common had a band. And I remember Common playing there and having 100 people there, you know. And he'd have a full band with, you know, some friends of ours playing behind him and stuff. And also, did D'Angelo was living in New York at the time well? As well. He, was all, he was already a myth and a legend you yeah. know, when I moved here. I mean, Brown Sugar came out when I was junior senior in high school so by the time i got here you know he was already like a, a mythical figure yeah yeah, yeah. you he, know he's from my hometown yeah so so was it virginia yeah where in virginia is he richmond oh he's from richmond yeah okay. i've played there a lot over the years great town by the way well virginia is has all kind i mean that's you can't really sleep on that state that's a serious music music state right there I say with second those cool, fans are amazing. Second coolest state in America, yeah. dog. That was amazing music coming out of California, the East Coast. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I can kind of see that. But uh, but yeah, it was a cool it was a cool scene that we were kind of we were kind of out on the outer edge of it. Because um, uh, how did you get involved with Greg? Like, how did that opportunity uh, come about for you? Well, that was like a full circle thing musically for me, you know, because the Almond Brothers band were, you know since I was a little kid were my template um, I saw my first Almond Brothers show when I was about 12, 13 years old and when I saw that band they combined everything that I was listening to the jazz, you know, because they were very heavily influenced by Coltrane and Miles. The songwriting, which was really about Dickie Betts and Greg, which was definitely coming out of everything from, you know, traditional Americana, bluegrass, country and Western to R&B, soul. And then they had the blues thing was like unbelievable. Like they had the blues was like the heart of everything they were doing. And of course, when you mix all that stuff up, you kind of end up with this sort of like this rock and roll sound. Yeah. And from an early age, I was like, okay, well, you know, I love Otis Redding and I love, you know, uh, the Stones and I love Coltrane. What else am I missing? Bobby Bland, you know, and these guys, they had it all, you know, kind of mixed in the sound. And they, they, they really had swing. That was the thing that set the Allman Brothers apart for me, from every other rock and roll band. And I'd say the other band that had the swing was Led Zeppelin. They were the English version of the swing. I've always thought of the Allman Brothers as like the American Zeppelin or, mm. or vice versa because the concept was so strong. And and it was, both those bands are like musical Cuisinarts with blues at the heart of it. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of experimentation going on. And for me as a kid who is turned on by a whole variety of art, uh, bands who were creating these pastiches of different styles into rock and roll at that high level of musicianship to me was the ultimate benchmark. So 2008, I'd been playing with my friend Jay Collins, sax player, and he'd been playing sax in, in Greg's band for a while at that point and uh, playing in Jay's band. Um, and Jay the whole time is saying, man, we have the wrong guitar player for the Greg Allman band. We got to get you in. We got to get you in. And it took a couple years for me to get an audition. And uh, it came down to one day I was living in Brooklyn and Jay called me. This was August of 2008. He called me and he said, uh, hey, man, come meet me at the Turnpike. 
you know, we're going to jump in my car and uh, we're going to bring you to Camden and have you sit in with the Allman Brothers. And I'd never met any of them before. So I show up. Everyone's super cool. Greg's super cool. Second thing out of his mouth was, uh, hey, man, do you know uh, do you know those Wayne Bennett licks from those Bobby Bland records? And of course, that's when my my upbringing in Milwaukee kicked into advantage because I had been schooled by a lot of singers like Harvey Scales and Willie Higgins, these guys I was playing with when I was a kid on, uh, you know, learning those licks because those Wayne Bennett licks with Bobby Bland, it's this call and response, you know, like stormy Monday, Bobby Bland's version of stormy Monday was the Allman brothers template for their version of stormy Monday. Okay. Which is very different. The Almonds have a very different arrangement, but the one thing that's the same if you listen to Bobby's version and the Allman Brothers version is the way the guitar plays off the voice, mm. the call and response. Mm. And I'd learned that from both records as a kid. So anyway, the, the short, short answer was, yes, I know all those licks, and yes, I know Wayne Bennett. And he was, he was very impressed by that. I think because a lot of guys, a lot of guys who play rock and roll, they don't know anything about the deeper blues, right? They'll know the three Kings. They'll know B.B. Albert and maybe Freddie. And Freddie's my personal favorite. I love all three of them to death, but Freddie's kind of the guy who's always resonated with me the most personally. But people will know those guys, you know, and then they might know Albert Collins, you know. But a lot of guys don't know, like, what it is to play with a singer as a guitar player, right? Because, see, I'm a singer, songwriter, and... There's a big difference between understanding someone like B.B. King or Albert King who... Now, B.B. or Albert King, right, they have a conversation with themselves. You know, they don't play chords on the guitar. They don't accompany themselves, right? Mm. They always had guitar players and keyboard players play the chords and play the accompaniment. What they would do is sing a lick and then play a lick. Okay. Right? Okay. Yeah. So that's call and response with one guy. And there's a lot of guys who play blues and know how to do that but it's a whole nother thing for a singer to be singing dynamically and a guitar player to be answering that singer and that's Dwayne and greg allman right mm. that was their like if you listen to their statesboro blues or done somebody wrong uh trouble no more or stormy monday when the allman brothers play the blues Dwayne and Greg have a conversation that goes through all the verses, right? Yeah. And there's something very different when it's two different human beings doing it. And there's just very basic dynamic things like learning how to play quiet, hang back, when you come in, when you come out. And it was a distinct advantage for me with Greg, I think, as an accompanist because I am a singer-songwriter, but also because I understood what it is to accompany a singer from a distance and not actually from the position of being the star. Right. Right. So we always had this relationship where he would ask me to kind of step up and step back. And I think that that was a unique skill that he acknowledged. That was my, that was what got me the gig. And then once I got in the door after about a year, he started hearing my records and then he became like a fan of my singing and my songwriting. And then it kind of became, that's when we kind of jumped into a deeper relationship that kind of got us in the last four years I was like in a band with Greg Allman. We were writing songs. We were arranging things together. I became his musical director. Like we established like a bond. You know, it was a collaboration at that point. But when I joined his band, I was essentially, you know, an accompanist or a side man on paper. Or like a a hired gun. A hired gun. Have you seen the uh, the Netflix? That's pretty cool. Liberty's in that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's how I discovered Liberty was through that uh, that Netflix doc. But uh, like, I want to get like the in-depth story of of that audition. Like, what what went into that audition uh, for the Allman Brothers? Well, I mean, it was a gig. You know, it was in a shed in Camden for three thousand people. So, wait, it was a gig? That was the audition? It was an Allman Brothers concert. That was the audition. I'm sorry, maybe I didn't make that clear. Yeah, it was a concert. It was a concert, in Camden, August 2008. You can find it online, actually. It's- filmed and recorded and stuff i played wow i so played two blues you had songs. no rehearsal well i know every single allman brothers song i mean i know all the parts 
Holy so it was shit. Like, it was, you know, when Jay Collins was asking me about getting ready for the gig, I said, dude, if there's one gig I was born to do, it was this gig. Like, this, this, this is how I learned to play the guitar. So when they told me what songs I was going to play, I was like, no problem. And I just went up and played. And, and it was like, right away, I was up there with Derek Trucks and Warren Haynes. Dude, I love Derek Trucks. Yeah. Get out of here. The first, first time I met him was that day. Yeah. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. He's always been a wizard. He's such a calm guy. That's such a that's a, that's a hum, humongous like audition. Yeah, it was it was I remember two two things, two anecdotes about that concert is the first thing Jay did is he uh, Jay Collins gave me uh, you know, some tickets to go sit out front to watch the show and I'm thinking, god, I'm going to get nervous if I have to sit out there and watch this. But I went out anyway at one point and I sat down in the 10th row behind a family with three kids in tie-dye shirts who were all teenagers. And I looked at them and I go, holy shit, that's me. Wow. And I'll tell you what, my family lived in Pennsylvania when I was a kid. And we saw them play in that shed when I was a kid. And I remembered that right then. And I said, I am going to go backstage. I'm going to get on stage and play with these guys now. And here's these kids. It's like the circle of life. Yeah. You know? And I was like, this is some heavy, heavy shit. And then I went on stage and I had, you know, they were playing. And I had, a, you know, I had never had like a, a guitar roadie before, you know? And I had Brian Farmer, uh, the legendary roadie for Warren Haynes, who passed away tragically a couple of years ago. He's nice as can be. And he like took my guitar and was like, you know, polishing it and tuning it and i was like wow this is crazy and i remember i picked up my phone i was in the wings of the stage at this point and i called my wife and i said i can't believe i'm gonna fucking do this you know this is insane and she's like don't worry you got this <laughs> i said all right i hung up the phone and then i went on stage and honestly once i got on stage those guys were so nice you know they were they were so accommodating and i think once they heard me play you know one chorus of blues they were like okay it's gonna be fine you know, this isn't going to be a train wreck. Like, cause no one knew who the fuck I was. Wow. You know, so that, I give them a lot of credit for allowing me to come up on the stage. I mean, that's the beauty of that whole school of music. And I've, I've tried to espouse that throughout my whole career. And I was, it was very affirming to work with Greg and the Almond family because it sort of affirmed everything I learned as a teenager from the older guys, you know? And I started to realize that's how these guys learned. They learned from Willie Dixon and their childhood friend, Floyd Miles, and a lot of the guys who came up, you know, playing on the rhythm and blues circuit. That's, that's how they learned to play. And that was the same way I had learned to play. And there's a fly by the seat of your pants aspect to things. I mean, you know, the whole thing about, you know, Charlie Parker getting a cymbal thrown at him and it changing his life. I mean, I had that happen to me a couple of times as a kid. You don't forget it. But you're always going to let the guy come up and play first before you throw the cymbal at him. And they have that. The Almond Brothers family has that sort of jazz, blues, rhythm and blues mentality. They're not a rock. You know, like there's a lot of rock bands out there. And some of them are still great. And they'll play to the tracks and they have their show and it's like to sit in with them. It's very like, okay, you're going to sit in and you're going to play on these 12 bars. And these. I mean, the Almond brothers are not like that. That, that whole school of music is like, yeah, come up and play. We'll see what happens. You know? Wow. Let's see if you can swim. Also too, one thing that, that kind of sticks out to me from, from the story is I always say it's important that your name runs on good credit, right? Like for you to just be able to, to get up on stage and audition in front of thousands of people, like playing like a show, uh, that means your name had run on good credit. You had obviously put in the work for a certain amount of time and proven yourself that when you walk into that room, people, oh yeah, just just come on, let's go. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I was pretty. I mean, if it was definitely if it's playing the blues, I mean, the blues is home for me. You know, if you get me on stage to play a blues, it's 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 like it's like putting on a bathrobe and slippers for me. It's the best feeling in the world when that music starts playing for me. I just relax right into it. Because, you know, I, 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 you mentioned that Greg asked you some feeler questions about, you know, like, what do you like to play? Like when I, whenever I work with bands, I, always, I, ask, I like to ask people, you know, what type of music do you like to play? And they're like, oh, I love jazz. And I'm like, you know what, if I could throw jazz your way or blues, you could play anything. If you know jazz and blues, I yeah. can throw anything your way. 100%. 
and you are equipped like to play it because that's ja- 100% true. Because I say that uh, uh, jazz is the Latin of music, you know, it's, it is, it's, yeah. it's the origin of everything. Well, I, I have another. I have another analogy for the blues. I like I like the Latin of music, so I don't know how to draw this into my cooking analogy, but my, <laughs> I, I love to cook. I love food, man. That's like my other active passion I've been hitting away at for the last 20 years. It's a great road hobby, too, to go to restaurants. You know, it yeah. keeps you on the straight and narrow, and it's a lot of fun. Um, but uh, my thing I always say is blues is like, blues is the roux in the gumbo, you know? It's like... To me, the gumbo, the gumbo is like jazz and rock and roll. But to me, blues is the roux because you cannot play jazz if you can't play blues. Mm. The roux is that butter, flour, and salt. You know, and if you make a good roux, that makes your gumbo what it is. Right. Yeah. Now, the other shit you add, you can make a seafood gumbo. You can make a meat gumbo. Okay. It's like a meat gumbo is like rock and roll. Maybe a seafood gumbo is like uh, jazz because it's more, you know, sophisticated. Maybe you're putting, you know, maybe you're putting wine and tarragon in your seafood gumbo. You know yeah. What I mean, maybe you're finishing. Maybe you're finishing it with butter. You know, at the end, you're doing things that are extra. You know, maybe you got other techniques. Maybe you're sous viding some shit thrown in there. Maybe you're me hungry. That's jazz. <laughs> Right? Yeah, you're right. That's jazz. And then rock and roll is like another way to go with the gumbo. Maybe that's a red gumbo. Oh, man. You know what I mean? Yeah, we going to Scott's house. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody, we going to Scott's house after this. But you don't have a roux. You don't have it. <laughs> right, right, right. And that's point. the blues. That's the blues. It, doesn't, it does not exist without the blues. The earliest recordings of jazz... You know, and particularly the, you know, the, uh, you know, the early Louis Armstrong and the Big Spiderbeck and all that stuff, you know, when you go into that real, like, because all to me, like jazz is from New Orleans. That's where jazz was born. Right. And it's also because you have that Caribbean influence and you have the French classical influence. And that's the, that's all the elegant, all the elegant notes in the jazz gumbo, right? You yeah. have Debussy and Ravel, you know, you have French classical music because these guys were studying, um, you know, Louis and these guys, they were, they were going to school for music and they were learning from French classical musicians. Wow. And they were also going to Congo Square and, and hearing African instruments every Sunday because the French were letting that happen. You could, that wouldn't happen anywhere else on the continent legally, you know. Right, right, right. You go to Congo Square, you're going to hear thumb pianos, you're going to hear djembes, you're going to hear stuff like that. So jazz is like, a very, very, that's, I, I, I see it as our, you know, easily the most sophisticated form of music. Oh my God. To oh, come out of American history, you know, 100% of music, American musical history, but that's only part and parcel to, to me. And this is something that, you know, I, I, I heard Wynton Marsalis give a talk about this a long time ago. It might've been in high school when I heard this talk he gave and you know, I love some of the stuff he says, and I hate some of the stuff he's said over the years. But I feel like he's really mellowed now. I really, ad- I, I admire him fully now. I had mixed feelings because I heard him around the same time say that he didn't like the Beatles and James Brown. And for me, that's like you might I mean, as well just I'm done with you. Yeah, you don't like music at that point. <laughs> but no, he's he's very cool now. But he he's taught amazing amazing uh, classes and and giving amazing speeches about the history of jazz. That is amazing. You know, it's just changed my life. Some of them. And one that I saw, he talks about, you know, those, all those kind of tributaries meeting in New Orleans and how that's the birthplace of jazz. And I don't think that's just because Wynton's from there. I think he's historically accurate. I think that's really where it was born. The blues is a key, the roux and the gumbo, a key mm-hmm. ingredient to that. Mm-hmm. But the blues came, you know, came down the Mississippi from, from the Delta. Right, right, right. And that's, that's pain right it's pain and escape came down the mississippi to to this cosmopolitan area you know and there was a refuge that was a cultural refuge at that time when it was a french colony so there's a you know there's a really there's something there's something in that story that is um very, very, very important for us to grab onto for identity. And 
you know, I don't know what the ultimate answer is. I'm the last person to ask, but there's something that resonates in the music that's come out of America in the last hundred years at this point, right? With the world. I mean, this environment changed music forever. Well, you know what it is? I think a lot of it, it has to be, has to do with the, the melting pot. Like a lot of it has to do with cultures clashing. You know, a lot of pain. But there's the gumbo again. Right, right. There it is again. It, it's, it's a perfect recipe or cocktail uh, to why American music, you know, really pierces through culture, the culture of the world. And how incredible is that? Is it to really have that conversation, right? About the melting pot and what music delivers to all of us as an answer. Hmm. Whatever our story or cultural background is, it's kind of the music is kind of the best shot we have as Americans to communicate to the world. I mean, I think that's borne itself out in terms of people's appreciation all over the world. I mean, if you want to speak to the heart of America, listen to the music. Oh, 100%. You know, that's what I say. And I, I, I wish that I feel like across the board in every quote unquote genre, and let's face it, genre is something that was come up with by a marketing guy. You know, there's these, you know, it's like grunge and neo soul and all the stupid shit they come up with all the time. Americana even, you know, it's like I was nominated for a Grammy in two Americana categories. I remember laughing. I'm just like, this, these are all rock and roll bands. Tell me about being nominated. Tell me about that experience. Oh, that was crazy, man. Um, I made a record with Greg Allman uh, a couple years ago called Southern Blood. It was ended up becoming his last studio record. Um, I wrote two songs on it. Uh, one is my own song that he covered called Love Like Kerosene. The other one was a song that Greg and I wrote together called My Only True Friend. Keep your soul on a man. I hope you're haunted by the music of my soul when I'm gone. Please don't fly away and find you a new love. I can't face. Living this life alone I can't bear to think This might be the end But you and I both know The road is my only true friend And uh, it turned out to be his last original composition. Um, and that song... Last year became, uh, it was number one in most Americana markets in the U.S. for radio play. Yeah. And um, it went on, that song and the album itself were nominated in best, uh, in the, in the, in the uh, Americana Song of the Year and Americana Album of the Year. Wow. We lost both to Jason Isbell, who I love dearly. He's definitely one of the great young hopes for music in general. But um it was tough to lose it, but um, losing it to Jason made it bittersweet, at least. Um, I think that, uh, you know, obviously Greg was not here to receive it. I mean, he he'd passed away in May of 2017. Mm. So, yeah. So we had, it was February 2018 was when the ceremony was. Um, <laughs> but, you know, obviously, you know, everyone always says, you know, just being nominated was an honor. It, it is um, when you consider how many people you know, how many talented people you were able to sort of rise above in essence. Um, but you know, it was never, it's never been about competitions for me. And I know it certainly was not for Greg. Um, you know, there's a lot, I mean, it, it's great for your, it's great for your quote unquote career to, to walk home with the statue. But to me, and especially now, I mean, it's all about getting a really good song, playing it as best you can, putting blood on the floor every night on the gigs and connecting with the fans. What were some mistakes that you think you made early on in your career that you, you wish you could have avoided? God, there's so many. Um, 
I don't even know where to start, especially with career. If anyone who's listening is young and they're getting into music, let me just be very clear. You really, really need to tour right away. Like when the Chesterfields made Henry Street Soul, we had investors and we had, this was 2000, 2001. And we had a lot of money for this to make this record. And we spent all the money on making the record. And the record sounds like it. I mean, the record is exactly what we were trying to achieve. 15 songs, 24 musicians, best studios, two-inch tape. I mean, it is exactly what we wanted to do. And artistically, I'm extremely proud of that record. But we blew our entire nut on making the record. And when we got to the end, we had nothing for promotion. We had nothing for publicity. And again, it was more expensive to make a record then. It right. cost 10 times what, what it, it does, does now. now. Right. Yeah. Because we weren't doing it digitally. We were doing it on tape. Mixing on tape. You know, manual mixes. But that's why the record sounds so good. Um, so when we got to the end of blowing all that money, we realized, you know, shit, there's no way to let anyone know we're doing this. And we did the best we could. And we made some advances, but we never got there. What I tell everyone now is, <laughs> you know, make a record for ten, twenty thousand dollars less if you can. And then, you know, however you do it, pledge funding or borrowing money from family or investors or whatever it is, buy a goddamn van and hit the road. You know, just do it. As soon as you got that recorded product out there and, you know, have your merch together right away because people ain't buying records. You got to have the T-shirts, maybe vinyl. Right. You know. Like when we we tour like that now, this is the first time in my life this last year because of Jesse, we got all this stuff together. And it's amazing what you can do when you have a van and you have merch that actually makes you exist to your fans mm. on two levels. You have the ability to get to them and then you have something for them to take home because it's not the record anymore. You got to have other stuff. So I would say, you know, Whatever your budget is, you should spend about a fifth of it on the recording. And the rest of it, you should spend on a marketing person, a tour van, and your merch. And if I had been doing that 20 years ago, like I said, now I, I'm i not for revisionist history. I mean, my time with Greg is, it defines me now. I spent a decade with this guy. And the songs I wrote with him ended up becoming staples of his repertoire. And I, I, I'm honored to be part of the Allman Brothers extended family yeah and it informs my music and my fan base in a way that i could never do any other way but i'll tell you that if 20 years ago i had done what i'm talking about now we'd probably be having a different conversation you know it i'd have gone i probably would have gone in my own music a lot sooner i mean my new record that's coming out in september saving grace it's my fifth soul album i mean in my 20s i made four well, 20s going into early 30s, I made four solo albums. Wow. Hustling. And I did them all myself, you know. But every time I did the same thing. I put all this work into the art. And um extremely proud of every record. They're mm -hmm. all on iTunes and Spotify, and you can hear them everywhere. But I, every time, did not learn the lesson. Every time I'd finish the record, and I'd be like, shit, I have no money. I can't promote this. I can't tour. I can't afford to make merch. I can't afford to have a van. I can't afford to be a band. And then I just go back to, you know, my 20s, you know, <laughs> teaching guitar lessons, playing weddings, you know. Yeah. This, this schmucking around trying just to figure it out. Just not learning my goddamn lesson over and, and over again. What uh, you, you mentioned Jesse, who's an amazing guy, and the reason why, you know, I'm meeting That's you. That's how we met today. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what has a good manager done for you and, and describe what a good manager does i mean really you don't want a good manager you don't want a bad manager you want um an assassin who will kill on your behalf that's what a real manager is now i've known plenty of artists who have good managers and i've known a whole lot who've had a lot of bad ones but the ones who will literally throw somebody out a window for you are the real managers mm. And that's what Jesse is. Not mm. that he would actually commit an act of violence. Perhaps a 
act in the metaphorical uh, sense, metaphorical (laughs) violence. But that's you got to have someone who shares your passion at an equal level. And we are the other thing is communication all day long and sometimes into the night. We are communicating text, email, phone calls every day. The communication never ends. Mm. And it's that's the only way to maximize your hustle. And Jesse and I are eye to eye on this. We're trying to do something that is sincere um, in music and, and, you know, to keep the lights turned on in the music business. And it's, it's very hard to balance those things. But if you have a champion, like someone like Jesse, who just understands, he understands my music. He really understands it sort of at a cellular level. That is a key component, I think. Oh like, yeah, you gotta have it. Yes. Like that that person needs to understand you, your brand, your mission, your message. That's the assassin. Your fan base. Yeah. Like it has to be another extension. It's your it's your wife yeah. and music. That's the assassin. Yeah. You need someone who literally wakes up every day killing for you. That's 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 a man. That's a real manager. That's and examples I can think of over the years are like, you know, you had uh, Albert Grossman, who used to manage, you know, the band and Bob Dylan, most famously, um, Janis Joplin, you know, Grossman was a goddamn animal, genius animal, you know, uh, Peter Grant for Led Zeppelin, genius mm. animal, Andrew Lou Goldham for uh, the Stones and the Beatles, total obsessed animal, you know, yeah, Brian Epstein was the other guy. With yeah, the Brian Epstein was two nice. managers. I mean, Epstein was a goddamn maniac. He started the girl screaming. It was him. He would go out in the crowd and scream the whole time. He started it. Well, Scott, man, it's a pleasure having you on the show, brother. This was I, a lot of fun, man. I appreciate you. You're a lot of fun to talk to. You should. Uh, you ever thought of going into therapy? Hey, you know what? I, I think about it every now and then. Like, I, I had a I conversation. Mean, look, man, my therapist <laughs> book rate is $250 an hour. I'm just saying, you might want to think about that. Hey, you know, I do it for free. <laughs> like, which, I, call it, I call it happy hour. It's good. Let's like catch that. a happy hour. I actually tried to get some beers on the way over here, but the, the delis don't sell beers in Chelsea now. What happened over here? New York has like changed, a, man. Is that a religious thing? <laughs> New York has changed. <laughs> well, I'm going to go get one now. We get the man, brother. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Be good, my man. All right. Thank you so much to the Silent Giants behind this episode of the Silent Giants podcast. This episode has been mixed by Mark Bird of NBM Studios, located in Astoria, Queens, NYC's number one recording studio for music, podcasting, and other audio recordings. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at NBM Studios NYC. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off till next time.